have you read these trend stories about how people going back to the office since COVID are very reluctant to have phone calls in front of people? What? So there's been this surge in office furniture that is basically these like these soundproof boxes that they'll put you that you can go in and no one can hear you. And it's good for podcasts, but a lot of people do it just for phone calls, too. I had no idea about this. I mean, I would want that. I was just finishing up an article in addition to looking over your article in a cafe. Normally, I would try to work in here, but it just mm-hmm. worked out with... Uh, with I dropped my um, son off and now I'm exquisitely self-conscious about any reveals about my personal life that might be made to other people, given your article. Oh, but, okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, uh, I, I found myself getting incredibly annoyed that somebody was having... Whenever people have conversations in the cafe and I'm trying to write, I get livid with them, but I have no basis or justification. It's just this visceral... Uh, visceral hatred that my concentration is being disrupted. But to, you know, like, how can I possibly justify that? I showed up at a cafe. No, but I think there is, there's something in the social contract that it's, it's different when it's a personal phone call. It's for, for some reason Mm. we treat that, we treat that differently. Um, when we, whenever we're like, when it's like interference, like, whereas, whereas if that person were having that same conversation with someone IRL across the table from them, you would not have any issue with it. Presumably. I think that in the social, in the social contract, you're supposed to have the conversation with friends in the cafe who are there. But if somebody is talking on the phone, they're bad, but isn't that a distinction without a difference? Yeah, I think, I think our generation is showing. I think, I think that, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, we, we are still of one of the last, but probably maybe the last generation that was, was taught to value, uh, in-person interaction and experience over the digital. Whereas I think now there's probably, uh, like a parody between the two. Okay, well, this is a good little segue to our uh, conversation, and I apologize for not doing a proper amount of banter, Eric, but let's just get into it. (laughs) Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. It is House of Strauss. We are joined with superstar by with well, I don't even know what I'm doing with my prepositions. We are joined by superstar entertainment industry reporter Eric Schwartzel of the Wall Street Journal. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan. Oh, it's so nice of you to say. Um, I'm a big fan as well, and I am. Man, I'm fascinated. We're just going to open up the conversation with this article that you have done for Wall Street Journal magazine, uh, which I believe went viral and was very much resonant and of the moment. Uh, It's called Behind the Tragic Instagram Perfect Life of an Ex-Disney Executive. Uh, And the sub... The subtitle subhead is when Dave Hollis quit his plum Disney job to join his wife, Rachel's self-help empire. 
The pair built a business around sharing some of their darkest feelings in social media. The reality was even worse. And it's a story about a man ultimately consumed by his own role as influencer, completely swallowed up in it. It's almost like a Greek tragedy, but of course, it's not like the ancient Greeks had anything approaching our technology. So it's almost it's almost something else. It's weirdly timeless and also novel. This whole idea of the self-help guru whose life is a complete mess in part because of the self-helping that he has embarked upon. So, uh, Eric, before we get into that, let's just start from the very beginning. How did you come to this uh, macabre and captivating story? Yeah, thanks. I think, um, first of all, I do think there was a Greek myth about this. It was called Narcissus. And I I think, uh, but it is a very contemporary version of that. Um, So the story is primarily about this guy named Dave Hollis. Um, and, And for a long time, he was the husband to a much more famous person named Rachel Hollis. Um, Rachel Hollis would, we'll, we'll talk about her, but she became a self-help. It's, 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 she built a self-help empire. You know, the, the world of self-help is very difficult to cover because no one, no one promotes their failures in this world. So it can be very hard to gauge the success of these self-help influencers who you see on Instagram. Um, but it is without a doubt clear that the Hollises were successful. They were making millions of dollars a year promoting self-help books, self-help podcasts, self-help conferences, and so on. However, the, the thing that is interesting about Dave is that he was not to the manner born of the self-help industry. I knew Dave because I've been, I've been working at the Wall Street Journal for 10 years. And when I started my job uh, in 2013, one role I had was I covered the weekend box office. So uh, on Sunday mornings, I would wake up and the numbers would roll in and I'd have to write like a 600 word story about what, how movies had performed that weekend. And usually that would entail one interview with the head of distribution at the studio releasing the biggest film that weekend. And Dave Hollis was the head of distribution at the Walt Disney Company. He was the guy who was booking Disney movies in theaters around the world. When I met him, I think he was probably in his late 30s, early 40s. I think pretty typical, uh, pr- the pretty a, a profile that's pretty typical for a, a Hollywood executive. He was a Pepperdine grad, uh, white guy over six feet tall with three, then four kids and a wife at home in Glendale. Um, and, and one thing I knew, I knew about Dave is that when I would call him in the morning uh, to talk about how a film had done, you know, occasionally with those calls, I'm sure it's very similar in, in the sports world, there would be these executives who, you know, if they had had a clunker that weekend, they could acknowledge it. They could say, mm. you know, eh, this, we thought this one would work. A little disappointed. Dave never went off script. He was always, you know, sort of the perfect Disney soldier. And even on weekends when the, the performance of the movie we were talking about was subpar, he would still maintain that they were very proud of it and they were excited about what it was going to do in the weeks to come. He was, he was always, um, you know, at, at Disney, they, they refer to, and you might know this as a former Disney employee, every, every, every employee there is known as a cast member. And I always thought of Dave as the ultimate cast member because he always followed the script. Um, and then uh, in around 2017, 2018, he announced that he was leaving Disney to go run his wife's self-help company. And 
in Hollywood, that seems like a pretty good euphemism for getting fired. I mean, like that is, I mean, you don't, wow, that's pretty crazy. And and he also had a job, it's important to note, that no one left. He was basically in charge of calling up a theater and saying, do you want to show the Avengers? Do you want to show Frozen? You know, and and, and who's going to say no to that? Um, So he had a job that no one left, and then ultimately he did. And so I started following him in every sense of the word, uh, and, and seeing what he was doing with his post-Disney life, because it had struck me as so weird. And so I would follow him on Instagram, and that's when I sort of saw the story unfold in real time, which was that in the course of less than five years, he would go from being, from climbing the Hollywood ladder to being divorced, living alone, and ultimately meeting a bit of a tragic end in, in Tripping Springs, Texas. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't even say a bit of a tragic end. I'd just say, yeah, you're, it's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> just say incredibly, incredibly tragic end. And in this article, you've uncovered this just subculture, and I'm endlessly fascinated by how there are these pockets of American life where you might not be aware of them, and then you visit and you go, "Oh my God!" There's this vastness under the surface that. I, I never knew about. There's this community of influencers with all of these people who follow them uh, competing for these dollars. And this is almost, we wonder, hey, where, have, have, where is the audience gone for movies? Where is the audience gone for TV? Well, this is one of these places. This is one of these spaces. And this is uh, something of a gold rush. I mean, you've described this town in Texas. It's almost like a prefab <laughs> Instagram ready setting um, yes. where you do this kind of work. And I guess, God, I mean, this story, man, there's just so much to it because if if this guy, if Dave Hollis was played by somebody in a movie to really make this uh, a complete MC Escher uh, rendering, <laughs> yeah. um, a younger William H. Macy would play him. There is, when I look at pictures of him or, or I watch clips of him, there's this, uh, veneer of friendliness and an easily discernible sadness, hardly concealed behind it. And he's looking for some sort of fulfillment and has seemed to have been put at sea by his wife's success. And I wrote down, I wrote down a, a part of it from your article um, about how her success meant suddenly Rachel was making far more money than he was. Dave would later write in his first self-help guide, uh, now that she doesn't need me, will she still want me? Um, there's just a lot there about the bonds people have, the intimate bonds people have, before we even get into the influence aspect of it, I found that part so interesting where we want our love to be um, eternal and unconditional with our partners. But is there this aspect where the necessity makes that so? And once the necessity is is removed from the situation, you're you're just kind of floating and becoming increasingly unbound. It's It's such a good point. I think, you know... I heard from some readers who saw this as a bit of a parable for um, how women are just unquestionably advancing far faster and far beyond men in in the country at this point. Um, I, I think there's also a lot of context here, which is let's explain a little bit about what Rachel was doing. Um, yeah. Dave, as I said, was was climbing the ladder at Disney, making a fantastic income. 
and and really putting himself on track to have bigger and bigger jobs uh, as he as he progressed. Rachel at the time was uh, was not much younger, but she was younger than he was and had not gone to college and was basically bouncing from one career to the other. She was doing some event planning. She self-published some novels and 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 really to, to put it in not so generous terms, really just, I think, was perceived by Dave to be kind of like having the, the classic Hollywood spouse trajectory of just mm-hmm. sort of ha- da- raising kids at home, but dabbling into things here and there. And one of the things that she got into was uh, doing these kind of live streams from their their kitchen table where she would go on Facebook Live and basically talk to mostly always women um, every morning and have coffee with them. And she kept a blog and she would write about, you know, her morning routine or gratitude and, and a lot of the things that that are very easily found in this in this self-help world. And in 2015, she published a photo of herself on the beach in Hawaii. And it's a, it's a photo of her in her bikini. I think Dave took the picture. And um, she, she's, I think, in her, in her 30s at this point. She's had three kids. And she's got like, a, she's, she's thin, but she's got like a saggy belly. And she publishes this photo and she posts this long caption about how this, she is going to own her stretch marks because those stretch marks mean that she had children. Those are stretch marks that she loves, that her husband loves, and she's going to wear a bikini, body imperfections be damned. And mm. this, this post goes viral. And I think it's a very instructive moment because it really encapsulates the currency of authenticity or what is perceived to be authenticity in this world, which is where the, you, there can be so much value in acknowledging imperfections or anticipating what people are going to say about you. Um, and that becomes a critical part of Rachel's brand. And and from there, she publishes her first book, which is called Girl, Wash Your Face. And it becomes this absolute sensation. It's a bit of a it's a very sort of slim book. I, I, I call it bootstraps feminism. It's very mm. much like, you know, it's not advice I don't think anyone has, has not heard before, which is get out of your own way. No one's coming to rescue you. Take care of yourself. Wake up an hour earlier. Sign up for a half marathon. Even if it scares you, run the half marathon. Write a gratitude mm. journal. I mean, it's it's a bit of a an amalgamation of all those kind of ABCs of self-help, but it becomes a phenomenon and sells millions of copies. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I, I have heard that the wash your face part comes at the end, that that is the, <laughs> uh, the culmination. Yeah. The no, culmination I, I, is uh, in the end it, of the whole thing. The last line of the book. <laughs> yeah, the last which line is of the, the book is to wash your face counterintuitive to me. I figured that it would have happened at the beginning and it, and it would go somewhere else, but that's, you know, that's how she wrote it. You're getting at something right there. Um, it's almost analogous to the idea of limited hangout uh, and the espionage trade or, or how companies handle their PR where they reveal a slight embarrassment um, kind of in lieu of or in order to protect against the greater embarrassment. But this is almost different where it's the small embarrassment is part of the currency as you as you say. And this has become so huge in the internet era where people share share things about themselves in order to be relatable and to connect to other people's insecurities. 
but they don't necessarily share the true insecurity. And then that creates almost this pressure to reach deeper for it. And I'm reminded of um, Michael Chabon said something, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, if you feel uncomfortable sharing it, it's probably good writing. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm reminded of there's uh, this guy, David Shields, who he, I think he, he's a fantastic writer, odd guy. And he, he wrote a book in the mid 1990s about oh, following... reality, reality, yes. something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, reality hunger, I think is one of his books. And he, he, he wrote this other book where he was just watching the Seattle supersonics and making these stray observations and musings. And there's a part in the book where he, he tells the reader that he envisions himself as a 25-year-old Gary Payton when he's having sex with his wife. Um, he, he reveals that, this, uh, this Jewish uh, kind of mousy white guy with a stutter. And it, w- when I read that, and I think the Chabon, the Chabon quote was in, in my head, uh, my, my reaction to it is that there's something wrong with sharing that. Uh, that's, that's just too much. But then there was this other thought in my head of, man, that's, that's great writing. That's really, that's really, that's really brave. I I feel like it's, it's kind of deviant behavior in a way. Mm -hmm. I can't articulate Mm -hmm. why necessarily, um, why one should not share such a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time to be that real and raw against something that bizarre that people would actually judge you for and maybe back away from uh, is an achievement in of itself. But I guess those taboos exist for a reason, right, Eric, that there's a, there's a reason that we have taboos against sharing everything. Right. I mean, I guess I, I would, I would put, Instagram posts in a different bucket than than David Shields oversharing, right? Because I think like the, l- let's say like if if writing should provoke, he's succeeding there, right? Um, mm. But I, I think the reason I was so drawn to the Dave and Rachel Hollis story was because I felt like in them I was seeing behavior just amplified. I was seeing social media norms that everyone is is sort of falling victim to amplified and accelerated in their story. And and so whenever I talk about that kind of currency of authenticity or the guise of authenticity, I think of, you know, how often we'll see people, friends, you know, post photos of their kids, but their kids are crying yeah. because guess what? I don't always, I'm not, I'm not always a picture perfect family here mm-hmm. too, you know? And, and I think um, what ends up happening is the, 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 the gulf between the, the guise of authenticity and the real problems behind the scenes becomes wider and wider. But it also raises a question, which is, you know, wait, I mean, like, is it really, like, is it our right to demand that everyone on social media announce, like, hey, I didn't want to get out of bed this morning? No, it's, mm. it's not. But I think the problem is you're, you're entering into an economic relationship when you're an influencer where you're asking people to pay you for advice, pay you for guidance. And, and, and the big, the major crack in the Dave and Rachel Hollis facade came when after years of promoting themselves as an ideal marriage and offering relationship advice and even taking couples on retreats, they announced that they themselves were getting divorced. 
And, and that's yeah. where, that's what I think drives people particularly nuts is when they see that the, the, the reality off, I mean, everyone knows, right? It's almost, it's a cliche now to say Instagram is not real life. Everyone knows that. But when there's like that kind of harsh, a reminder, I think it, I think everyone, everyone like has an absolute sort of burst of rage at, at what they've been kind of well, played by. Because the confessions are almost in service of this idea that it's all good generally. And the imperfections are part of this overall tapestry that's still admirable and still works. Once you reveal that you have all these confessions that you're describing, these little embarrassment, these little embarrassments along the way, these uh, little tidbits that she shares about their sex life and how it's wanting. Um, it's all okay. It's all digestible if they're still together. They're a functional family. At the moment, they're no longer a functional family. Then what's the raison d'etre of any of this? It's just mm. people sharing their miseries. And I think at that point, it looks like both of them lost the plot uh her professionally and and him i mean in just all kinds of ways i mean he completely fell apart and lost his purpose so i mean that's that's this aspect of it that i find especially fascinating this um this pressure on somebody when they're the self-help guru to have a certain amount of success and how it it creates a pressure that has it all unravel i mean jordan peterson is somebody who uh there's a big ideological component there where it's hard to have a rational conversation across media about him. But if you just divorce it from ideology, he was a self-help guru. He wrote mm -hmm. a book called 12 Rules for Life that I think were apolitical rules. Uh, I didn't read the book, but it seemed like fairly solid advice. And also, isn't and, it isn't it like guys make your bed? Sounds a lot like yeah. girl wash your face. Yes, yes, it does. You know, clean your room sounds like uh, wash your face as probably pretty good advice. But he becomes this guru. He gets all this attention. He's a figure of controversy. And then he's got to go away for a while because he gets addicted to Klonopin. And I wonder if some of the people consuming his advice are then left with, well, what do I, how do I rationalize what I was even given mm. if the person showing me how to lead a better life evidently cannot control their, their life in the most basic ways. Well, I think, I think one, one response to that is, is how the influencer world, and this is primarily the self-help influencer world. It, it really becomes heads. I win tails. You lose because, mm. um, Dave, after he left Disney and then started pursuing a self-help career himself, um, he really struggled with addiction and and there were times where he he couldn't hide it from his following. He had he had built a following of about a half a million followers who would follow him for advice on oh, everything from you know moving your body every day to monitoring your use of technology and asking for a raise. I mean, uh, advice large and small. And um and there were then there were times where he would be on a live stream and it was very clear that he was he was on something or, or not doing well. And, and he would have to acknowledge it to this audience that came to expect mm. an explanation. And, and it really, it, as I said, it became a heads I win, tails you lose, because when you really slip up, when you really mess up, 
it it very quickly can become you can twist that narrative and it can become uh, a, a learning lesson, right? It can become. It's, it's it can, like when the director yells, uh, "Use it, use it!" Exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, um, I, I think everyone in this space finds that even even the the trip ups. Now, who knows how um, receptive the audience is, right? I mean, if they, or they might see through it too. Um, but it can also become a bit of. It can almost be like just sort of reset the season on on the show. Hmm. No, I like that. That is a good entertainment industry analogy um, about resetting the season because these seasons in fiction, um, nonfiction to a degree, it's based on overcoming an obstacle. That's how you have a story. And now you've introduced a new obstacle. It's a new story. Um, do you think there's something inherently unhealthy about performing one's own existence for others. I, it, it, it now dawns on me that I have a website named after myself. So maybe <laughs> I, I live in a glass house. Um, I'm always performing my own ideas, but to take it to the direction of your existence, to be a living memoir, I'm reminded of, uh, Jonathan Rosen's fantastic book. Oh, best, uh, about, best book I read it, last year. Best book I read last year. Yeah, incredible. And it's the ultimately best minds. About, it's called the, I Cut You Off. It's called The Best Minds. Yes. Thank you for doing that because I was worried about saying The Best of Minds. I was definitely caught up in the air about it. Uh, yeah, The Best Minds about his friend becoming this celebrity for overcoming schizophrenia and going to Yale Law School. And they're making a movie about his life at the very moment it's becoming unraveled and then he tragically murders his fiance. And at the very moment that he is trying to render a tale of inspiration about himself, uh, that does not seem to be healthy. Obviously he has a mental illness, but this is another instance right here with Hollis where, and his wife where they're, they're, they're trying to perform themselves and it becomes unhealthy. Do you think that that is inherent that to perform oneself somehow will corrupt the experience and corrupt you? Or is this just us seeing the most extreme examples and trying to draw conclusions? I don't. I think it is the most extreme example, but I think it's I think it's applicable to to so many people right now. Um, because I, I mentioned how I, I knew Dave. I, I I had a phone relationship with him when he was at Disney. But when he became a self-help influencer, I followed it because it was like when it's like when someone from your high school like gains notoriety yeah. for something, right? You just sort of have this bizarre you feel this bizarre kind of personal connection to it. So I would I would follow things and I, I and I think what I noticed that was particularly troubling to me that you're hitting at Ethan is that I, I I saw how every element of his life anything that might be even remotely spontaneous had to be trademarked and packaged in a way. And I'll give you an example. So when when Dave moved to Texas to run, because all the all the self help companies, not all of them, but a lot of them moved to Texas where they can build without any income tax to worry about, and um, and sort of as you said, it's all sort of prefab for for Instagram down there. Um, you know, he he moved to Texas and he tr uh, bought himself a vintage Bronco at, that he would drive on the back roads and and, and drive around, and he introduced it to his followers as the incredible Hulk and he called it the incredible Hulk. And then a couple of weeks later, you'd start to notice that he had a dash cam in the incredible mm. Hulk 
and he would be filming reflections in the Hulk. And there was a, there was a pool. He had a pool at his house and there was a, there was a, like a pack back patio. Soon he started calling that his patio of peace. And he would say, Hey there, I'm here from the patio of peace. And it just felt like everything, everything in his life was becoming this like producible element mm. that would like have a kind of stickiness to it or a branding element to it. And then it grew as I, as I did the reporting, I learned it even went so far as him being pitched things to introduce to his life. So for instance, there were uh, employees working for him and his wife who wanted to generate more content for Dave. And so they suggested he start reading, having tea parties with his daughter once a week, and they would film that. And it became tea time with Noah. Noah's the girl's name. And they would record it. And then I think it was every Wednesday, there would be tea time with Noah. And then soon enough, shortly before he died, there was a tea time with Noah book that was published. And so oh. it, it felt to me like, um, it, it, it felt to me like, and I think about this a lot whenever I see, we all have had the experience, right, of seeing uh, friends peddling essential oils or leggings or any of these MLMs that have, that have proliferated. It, it felt to me like just a new version of what would happen like when our moms were asked out to lunch and someone would slide the Avon catalog across the mm. table, right? It just felt like this real cheapening of, um, of, of experience and of life. And then you would see like anytime, anytime something would happen, um, that was remotely spontaneous, right? Like, uh, like a kid scores a goal at a soccer game or something. The thought I was told by people who do this is just, um, where's the camera? How can I capture this? Um, I mean, if I were a, if I were an influencer at this moment right now, like I would have probably, I probably would have a camera on me recording this so that I could, mm. I could use this experience at, to package and, and, and build off of. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm already self-conscious enough without, without some sort of other level to it. I mean, right now I'm leaning forward towards you as we're talking because we might use the video. I had a clip where Bob Costas was complimenting me uh, very graciously that producer Mays sent me, but I didn't want to share it because I was leaning back and you look like flabbier and weirder when you do that. And just, it just looks terrible. So I never shared it. This is my oh. limited hangout. This is my little sort of confession, uh, confessions to make me more relatable. Um, but I, I think to be observed makes you neurotic and crazy and that you're chasing a goal when you do it makes you no less. So, but it's interesting. You, I think, the Truman Show is, um, that's a phrase that comes up. The, mm -hmm. uh, the 1990s movie, the late 90s movie, where this man's whole existence is being broadcast to the world as reality TV, and he's he's unaware. Uh, but you can tell it's such a 90s movie, because if you made something like that today, Truman would get addicted to being Truman once he realized he was Truman. He, oh, would he, wouldn't, start, he wouldn't want to leave. Yeah, He would start participating in the farce of his life and the hawking of wares and becoming concerned about the way his marriage looks to the audience. And he would, he would get in on the lie in a way or get in on the performance and it would all become one thing if they mm. made that movie, if they made that movie today. And I'm just, there is something so strange perhaps to us because it's our generation 
of watching not just this unfold with a Gen Xer who ultimately succumbs to instability and addiction and death, but also just it it is the way young people increasingly live. Maybe not on that scale, maybe not with uh, financial ambition, but they just they live a curated shared existence. And uh, when I was following the Cavender twins around for that article that got me in trouble, um, there was just something so surreal about watching people whose every step and consideration was being mined for content. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like watching people become the singularity. I don't have a good question for you, Eric. I apologize for that. I'm just kind of riffing on what we're talking about, but you almost feel like you're watching a new kind of person being shaped by the technology. Right. And then, and then you start to, you can imagine how it, it flips and eventually a person is going through their day-to-day life, viewing things through the, the filter of what can I, what can I find here? What can I, what can I use, use this for? Um, and, and I think what, I mean, I, when I was working on the story, I, I, as I said, I followed Dave and I followed this story kind of casually and out of, you know, sort of voyeuristic interest. And then when he died, um, I thought this is, this is a story. And I thought it would be, you know, it's, it's a classic magazine journalism piece, right? It's a, it's a look at a different, at a, at a weird world. Um, it's, uh, it's a bit, it's, it has all the, all the elements there. And I also knew that Rachel Hollis is still relatively famous. So I figured it would, it would do well. The The response was so beyond what I could have conceived. I think it's probably the biggest reaction I've had to any piece I've done in my career. And, and I think one reason why is because of what you said, which is that Dave had made it clear to his friends um, and his colleagues that he did not understand this world. He did not like want to go into the, being the on-camera talent. Whenever he started to do videos with his wife, he, mm. I mean, the early videos, he looks like he's being held hostage. I mean, he looks so miserable. And part of it, I think, was he grew up in um, a Southern California home. He did not necessarily grow up in the kind of culture where you overshare, um, where where you do air your dirty laundry in public. Whenever his wife would talk about their lousy sex life and how she had to shave her toes and all the all the kind of messiness that she was kind of really um, gleefully sharing with the world, he would often have to start drinking to get through it because he was so embarrassed and it was not his way. But then I think to your point about the Truman Show and what it would look like if they made that film today, even he eventually starts to see the allure of recognition and fame and positive feedback. And it must be said, the fact that he was really helping people. I mean, I, I, mm. I, I talked to one woman who had, had written suicide letters to her family and was planning to commit suicide before she found Dave's videos and found like a new will to live through the advice that he was giving. I mean, that is a very powerful thing to hear that you've helped someone do. Yeah. And if you start thinking like, well, I do have this platform now and, and maybe I, I, maybe I got it reluctantly, but I do have it. Why not try to, to use it for good? It just, so it just was that all of the accoutrement that came with that proved to be too devastating for him. Yeah. I, I, there was this aspect where maybe that reluctance, that reticence was there for a reason that that was a guardrail for somebody who could not handle it. And once you started sharing a little bit and 
maybe he had some sort of he had some sort of sense of the danger there if he if he started to um take it in and it it consumed him and it makes sense i think some people's brains are just not right for this moment and i i was around kevin durant who is a famously extremely online nba superstar who reads everything written about him mm. and will go at fans and has been caught using a burner account. And I've often thought that it's easy to come away and go, okay, well, this guy is flawed. Look at his flaw. Look at his insecurity. Look at this, look at that. But this is, it, it's quite possible that, that this sort of mindset that he has is a indivisible from what makes him successful. Um, this need to prove, but B, also, if he existed in another era, it just wouldn't be a problem. Like we, We've set up this technology that's almost a trap for just certain personality types who, who might otherwise be fine. And it's almost like when they brought alcohol to the new world and the population there had just never encountered it. And it just runs roughshod over their sensibilities. Um, I'm Again, I'm not this is just riffing. I don't have any. I don't have any good questions to reformulate that into other than to say it, it's just such a modern tragedy in part because it seems like the addictive component was created by by people and somewhat recently. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I when I was doing this story, I would often hear that there that influencers fall into one of two camps. They either read every comment or they don't read any comments. And mm. I don't think either was offered up as a particularly healthy psychological profile because the folks who are reading every comment, like Dave was, were, 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 will often get obsessed with the, with the negativity. And, and this, was, um, this was a story, the Dave and Rachel Hollis divorce um, and kind of breakdown and cancellation of the, them two really became a bit of a Reddit soap opera as well. And there was yeah. a, a very robust kind of uh, there was a lot of color commentary going on, um, going on there that, that we should that we should talk about. But but I also was often told, you know, but if you're not reading any comments, you're asking all these people to follow your advice, but you're not you don't want to hear from them at any time. That all that also has to probably show a deep unwellness as well. Yeah, it's probably the more healthy of the two choices. But I, I try to have this synthesis where. I the comments I read are from my customers. So there's a barrier of entry there. And it could be tough if you've written something or said something that your customers didn't like, then that, that can be uncomfortable and that can be less than enjoyable. But you mentioned Reddit. There's something in particular about Reddit and Reddit is part of this story. It's just particularly negative, I've found. And almost beyond just explaining it as the internet. I think there's something weird about Reddit communities where they almost become a gripe session. I've I've seen many subreddits organized around some sort of product I like or some sort of show that I like and everybody just gets together to bitch. It's so strange. <laughs> it's so odd. Uh, I, I come there thinking, well, this is a self-selected group of people who obviously are fans of Podcast X why are they all finding community and how much they hate it? I, I don't, mm. I mean, do you have any thoughts on this about why Reddit? Um, or do you just see that as a manifestation of the internet's general negativity? Um, it's interesting. I'm wondering if it's, if it's of a piece of like the, like the, 
the hate watch phenomenon, like I, which mm-hmm. I don't, I don't understand really the, the sort of the, the compulsion or the, or the fun that's had in, in hate watching something. Um, and, and I wonder if like that, that allows them to kind of take that approach to things they even like. Um, mm. but I think, you know, I would also say on the, on the Reddit thread, there's this Reddit thread called Hollis Uncensored that basically follows the Dave and Rachel Hollis story and, and, and the soap opera that it became. And what was really interesting was there was certainly a lot of negativity on there, but I also heard from people on there who saw it as almost like a, they were almost like the ombudsman of the the Dave and Rachel Hollis story. And when Dave was in particular really struggling and, and, and kind of like, and, and putting up videos where he was not treating his kids well and, um, really seemed to like be going through it. They, I think knowing he read the thread would often see themselves as like the people who should be saying like, get some help, log off, go, go like take care of yourself. And there was this kind of protective element to it as as well. But what I also found interesting was um, it it became this like interactive. There was this interactive element to it too. So um, Dave and Rachel and all these influencers, you know, like they just are generating so much video, podcasts, books. Like there's so much that they're putting out there. And there's this interactive element where like there were even people whenever they were trying to figure out like how much time Dave was spending with his kids after the divorce, they would screenshot videos to try to figure out if he was in Texas or was he somewhere else. And there was this, there's this interactivity to it that I've noticed in a number of other parts of our culture right now. I mean, I think like the easy, the easy, um, references like QAnon, right? Like where you're seeing messages or you're kind of divining meaning in, in certain things. But like, like my sister's a major Taylor Swift fan. And when she walks me through like the fan theories of like what's hidden in her lyrics and why she's posting things on certain dates and the numerology involved in that, like it, it felt like there was an element of that as well, where it was not only just spectator sport, but there was like a gamification of it where it was like, we need to figure out where he is, what state he's in. Um, is he dating this person? Because she referenced on a podcast last week that she was in Phoenix and he might be in Phoenix now. That kind, that kind of gamification is, was also living on Reddit as well. Yeah. The unhealthy singularity of everything becoming everything all at once um, where you're performing your existence and the people you're performing it for are also becoming part of this performance and informing it and breaching the fourth wall. Um, I, I mean, do you have a good mental map? I mean, is that even the right term? Do you have a good idea of who the audience for this is? Because I don't know anybody, at least I don't think, who follows, uh, you know, followed this saga Maybe I do, and I just don't know it. But, you know, what, what is this population of people? What are they seeking from these self-help gurus? It's, um, it's a great question, and it's one that I spent a lot of time trying to answer. And one question I'm left with is I don't know if this is a distinctly American phenomenon. It certainly feels like one. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I think, uh, you know, Rachel and Dave and their their fandom is representative, I think, of a, where a lot of these people are finding success. So, so Rachel's book, uh, her first book, Girl, Wash Your Face, was published by 
a small imprint that caters to Christian audiences. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, it was relatively family friendly. Um, and, and there was a, if not a Christian tinge to it, then certainly sort of like a, a pan spiritual tinge, Mm -hmm. tinge to it. Um, and Dave was religious as well. So I think that there's an element of that. Um, but I really, I have to say it was for both of them, Dave and Rachel, almost entirely women. And, um, it seems entirely, almost entirely, uh, white women and, um, women who, uh, I'd say, uh, based on what I could tell, a, a mix of, uh, working and stay at home. Um, and what's really fascinating to me is how many fans of theirs I met who want to go into influencing themselves. Mm. Um, that, that seemed to be the, like the unifying thing was like so many people, even if that's not why they come to them initially, that seems to be where a lot of them end up is saying, and I, I want to become a coach myself. And so, so just like picturing the Versailles mirrors where it's just reflecting back on its reflection, back on its reflection, but sorry, continue. continue. No, you're right. You're right. And, and, and I, you know, I think like one thing to keep in mind is like, this work is really hard. It is very hard to get to the level that they were at where they were making millions of dollars a year. Um, just because it's, it's a very crowded field. You have to be, you have to work 24 seven. And as you said, you have to kind of turn over your life for, for public scrutiny. And so I would, I would meet folks. I went to like a show that Rachel had in San Diego and I would meet folks and they would say like, well, I, you know, like I work at a, I work at a, in a college admissions office now, but I'm hoping to get into some coaching on the side and transition into that or do public speaking like Rachel does. Um, and, and that was, that was always the trajectory it seemed was like thinking like, oh, I should, I should do this too. And so I started to notice that there were all of these fans of, of Dave and Rachel's who like Dave and Rachel, they're like in the, they're in like the 0.01% of influencers. They have, Dave had half a million followers. Rachel had more than a million before Rachel was canceled. She had deals with target and and she was like blue chip, blue chip influencer. Mm. And then I'd see all these fans who are, are, are trying to, you know, do good in the world, but they're, they're, they're posting inspirational messages to followers, you know, like 225 followers. And, 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 and it felt like, I mean, I, I know you have to start somewhere, but it just felt like, that was also a, like a real cheapening of, of friendship because like all these people who have, yeah. you know, a small little gathering of maybe like old college friends following them on Instagram are suddenly also being peddled this like constant, constant self-help um, reminders and, and uh, mantras. I mean, it's hard not to hear that and go to the obvious place of the void the void of a lack of religion of secularization. Right, I mean, right. I mean, it's, it's I'm like, just, yeah. it's just right there. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm like a broken record on this. I feel like I, I reference bowling alone, like three times a day, but it, it feels like, uh, it feels like yet another example of that breakdown in, in bonds. Right. Um, I'd say, mm. I, I mean, like religion might be, might not be the, the only explanation because as I said, it did feel like at least anecdotally, a lot of these people do have a more organized religion, in their lives yeah. as well. But uh, certainly when it comes to like communal bonds, 
um, the, or maybe it's just a replacement, right? It could also be a yeah. replacement where like you, you go to these conferences, you go to these Tony Robbins conferences for, for three days and you meet people and you stay in touch online. Cool. And because you and I are uh, the age we are, we think that's a, ch a cheaper version than the real thing, what we would well, call the real I, thing. If I'm to just interpret it in this very moralistic, tidy way that is probably not complicated enough for what is actually happening, I, I perceive it as this. I perceive a religious family, a religious man. You mentioned in the fantastic interview with Megan Daum that he was this rare creature in Hollywood who would be on his way to church on Sunday when you talked yeah. with him. Yeah. And um, at some point, it almost seemed like the religious aspect of what they were became less enticing and themselves became more enticing. And it went from, well, there's God to, well, maybe I'm a God. You know, like maybe, maybe uh, I, I'm I the, that's, is, I that, that's, is that too much? It's a, it's that's a too little, much. it's a little tidy for this example. It's a little tidy <laughs> for this, this case study. But, um, I think it was also about, uh, audience capture and, and yeah. if you, um, you know, it's like, it's like when you're in high school and you're listening to an album and you think, wow, this is great. And then you find out it's a, it's a Christian band, right? Like there's like, mm. like, I think there was always a reluctance to, to be uh, painted as too Christian because that would probably limit the, limit the audience. Well, I look, Eric, I don't know if you understand this, but this is a yes and podcast where <laughs> you're supposed to merely m validate my cockamamie theory and, and we're supposed and to build on that. And I should compliment you now that you're leaning forward. I should oh, just thank I you. should just repeat what <laughs> repeat what Bob Costa said to you. Oh yes, no, that'd be great. That's what this is all about. Now we're now we're trapped in my grandiosity and uh, my need for affirmation. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's a kind of a tragic collective story though, because to what you're saying, this whole gambit of people trying to log roll one another and trying to all build each other up to be influencers, they can't all be influencers, right? right. They can't, it, there, there, there's an inflation happening. It's a crowded field. And I just wonder where does this community, where does this um, sector even go? Is it just, does it, does it break apart? Does it build into something more formalized? Did you get any sense of where this mini industry is headed? Well, I think, you know, it's, I, I thought a lot about when I, I graduated college in 2009 and I remember, um, obviously not a great economic picture, um, at that time. No. And I remember yeah, observing, for me. yeah, yeah, yeah. I re and I remember observing, um, a lot of people our age at that time taking on these like odd nebulous roles. Like I remember I knew this one woman who suddenly announced herself as a food coach and kind of like, <laughs> uh, you know, a dietitian. I think she had yeah. taken a, an online course. And, and, and I, I sometimes wonder if the enthusiasm with which some of these people are jumping into this influencing world is, is like an, is like a, a metric of like underemployment elsewhere, mm. or like, uh, uh, there's like a, a lack of, uh, sort of structural employment somewhere. I know that yeah. the data wouldn't back that up, but I wonder if like, there's like a, there's a, there's a vacuum that is, that is attempting no, there, to be filled. Th there's something there. There's something there too, with the pandemic revealing to people that they hated their jobs. They hated their yes. lives. It was this big yes. pause. And there was this sense of, Oh my God, what am I? Um, and I, I think, you know, for a lot of people, we were, 
we were conditioned in such a way as to believe we would become special. Some of us actually acted upon uh, acted upon it and named their own website after themselves. But I think for a lot of people, <laughs> I really, culture... I would really encourage you to not like, not <laughs> let this like send you into some sort of spiral. I think, I'm fine. I, I I'm, think, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, House I'm, of Strauss I'm, is a great, great name. I, I, it rhymes. I'm cool with it. It is, I, you know, I'm playing it up. I'm playing it up for the audience that I have some sort of neurotic issue with it. I do not. Um, no, no one would ever but, say you're neurotic, Ethan. Nobody, nobody. Uh, <laughs> and I would sue them if they did. I would get very angry. Uh, but I think there's not a lot in the culture that's reifying the sense that just having a job and a role and doing a good job at it is enough. There's something, and mm. this is maybe getting at the uniquely American story aspect. When you go to Japan, uh, there's a sense in Japan that you're just supposed to do a really good job of what you're doing. That somebody who makes socks is just supposed to be fulfilled and being a great sock maker, and that and that's that's good enough. That's that's what you do. Um, I don't think we really have that as much. I think there is more of a pressure to be extra special in this culture. And if you're not that, then you need to find a way to be more, more than what you are. Uh, we, we are not a culture. We are not fundamentally European in nature either, where I think in England, for instance, there's just more this, um, acceptance that, uh, your life is going to be shit and it's raining outside and Mm. there's nothing really to aspire to. And there's no optimism here. Uh, we don't have that. And so I think more people can get caught up in this matrix of trying to be something, um, almost like, uh, we're all in Miami. I mean, that's a town I associate with this where everybody's trying to to be this undefined thing so they can reach this sort of um, social transcendence I really like that yeah no rather that we it's not like um we all live on campus now we all live in Miami now um, <laughs> I, I I I like that I mean you know in in Rachel's uh kind of tagline when she was starting out was made for more and she would tell everyone mm. you're you're made for more um, that was, that was what she would, she would put out there. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a good point. And I, what I think about is you asked about the, the future and I think I'm still so struck by the fact that like this entire economy we're discussing is actually a parasite on a much larger organism called mm-hmm. meta, right? So like, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of an- historical analogs where the creation of one company has has spur has spurred so mu- so much of a li- like the livelihood and aspirations of people who have no affiliate no direct affiliation with it. Yes, you know, yes, um, like this is like and and I think about this all the time because Dave, as I say, it's it's like so perfect to me that that Dave worked at Disney because. Disney was, um, in some ways, the proto Instagram. It was the where it was the fantasy factory. Um, you know, no no Disney princess it has you know uh, belly belly flat fat that she's <laughs> you know you know showing off in a bikini, right? Like it's just like the it's like the place that we went to for for for, for sort of the picture perfect life. Um, and it was also just like, but it's also it's just a very traditional company. I mean, you might have people like who make a living as Disney World vacation planners or something who can who can basically have a have a livelihood that is not supported directly by Disney, but dependent on it. Um, But these 
social media sites, these companies have now just this like incredibly broad roster of people whose entire careers are only made possible by their creation. Um, and, and I think like, I mean, we're seeing this in the news industry right now, like you're, you're entirely dependent on someone not waking up someday in, in, in Cupertino and deciding to tweak the algorithm Mm. so that self-help, uh, content doesn't surface as regularly as it does now. Yeah. I mean, that's this whole, I mean, that's, that's this bigger conversation. Uh, I mean, this is something Matt Kleinman has talked about on, on this, uh, on this podcast of this weird, this weird reality of the algorithm causing the entertainment industry to, uh, almost like the way a cat chases a laser pointer, just sort of chase whatever the algorithm is going to, is going to want and tailor their content to it, but they've got no control over where that's going to go. And then that leaves them unable to really pivot. Um, yeah, I don't even know where to go with that one necessarily. I feel like I'm seeing aspects of that story play out in articles I'm I'm writing where I'm watching uh, ESPN try to make the Pat McAfee show work. And he uh. is a YouTube star who's casual and he talks with his buddies for hours and it works on YouTube. And so they think they can get it all and they can make the YouTube show, the TV show. He'll rake in young gamblers to disney because that's where we're at that's what disney wants these days they're in the gambling business which is mm-hmm. interesting in and of itself and it doesn't really it it, it doesn't really work it, it it doesn't you can't make it you can't make all things to all people and this this attempt i mean maybe i'm not really maybe i'm taking this in a weird digressive direction um to what you're saying but the the overall fracturing of entertainment and uh, the want to have some sort of structure. I mean, we're all just in this diffuse reality. We're floating through space uh, like Sandra Bullock in Gravity right now. <laughs> well, I think, I, and I think it's, um, I think about this a lot because I'm 37 and I cover the entertainment industry, but it feels still like so much of what I cover and how I cover it is structured on a, a very anachronistic understanding of how people are mm. spending their leisure time. Um, I, I think like when you, I feel like once, like twice a year or so, everyone's reminded of like how massive an economy the video game industry is. Um, yeah. Like just like, massively this bigger, massively it, bigger than any, like any movie that's going to win any Oscars this year or um, even open, <laughs> open this year. Yeah. And, and yet I think just by virtue of, who covers each industry. It's like, it's just received differently or perceived differently. Mm. Um, and, and I think what you're describing with like the Pat McAfee show is like, is like those attempts to sort of land grab for it. It, uh, they, they always, they always fall flat. Um, and, and it's like, it's like inviting like the wrong, it's like the wrong, like the putting the wrong dinner table together or something like dinner party together. Um, but I think, I think like video games is one. And then I think like, I, I think this is changing a little bit too, but like just the fact that these Instagram influencers, these, uh, social media influencers are now sort of being, they are the new, they are entertainment in, in one sort of by one definition, like they are, they are sucking up a lot of that, that leisure time as well. 
The video game thing you mentioned is interesting because it's so massive. It dwarfs this these other forms of entertainment, but it doesn't appear to have much cultural traction. And yeah, GTA, I'm kind of aware of aspects of, of that video game. And when it comes out, I'm aware of it, but it doesn't seem like it produces broadly discussed characters that are part of people's lives and narratives and stories. And um, is that just me being too old for it or too busy for it? Or is that the case that video games are this massive entertainment part of the entertainment industry that is in a way, I don't even know how to describe it. it, it, it it's um, it's almost too individualized yeah, that's what that I was going to say is there's like there's there's no I, I mean, there's some communal element to it, but it's like it's yeah. inherently it feels like it feels like like the equivalent of like when people always point out that like basketball stars become more famous more regularly because they don't wear helmets, you know, like mm, it, it, yeah. it feels like uh, there's this element of like like video gaming is like an inherently sort of individual practice so that that might that might yeah. be part of it but i also think a big part of it is just like we've just been conditioned to care about certain industries because the the news outlets that you and i read uh have sort of traditionally covered certain industries certain ways yeah i find myself more fascinated in these industries on the wane than when they were robust um oh yeah no it's so, much more interesting to cover the the fall yeah you're, you're watching you're, the Titanic sink and you're just watching the human behavior of, uh, of mm -hmm. how everybody does it. So I'll read you, I'll read Matt Bellany, I'll get this this sort of, but also in, in your work and his work, I'm almost seeking, I'm almost seeking out you guys to perform some sort of ordering uh, trick through all this chaos because from the outside, it does appear to be in this kind of dissolution and uh, you know, what the hell is happening? I think is a question a lot of people have, of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do you, I mean, here's a question. Do you think that we are in an unusually chaotic entertainment moment right now, or was it always thus? And it always felt like things were changing. I suspect to answer my own question before getting yours, it did feel like decade, for decades, TV and movies were more or less TV and movies. And it does seem mm -hmm. like right now is especially fractured and atomized. Yeah, I think there's a couple things happening. There's a, there's a blurring of the lines, right, between what's, a, what's, what's TV and what is a movie. Um, things that 10 years ago would have been a two-hour movie are now a six-episode miniseries like i think we're sort of having like a definitional like a kind of a definitional change i think uh economically um these studios are now much uh, just like more than ever part of much broader corporate entities and becoming less and less of an important they're a very they're a very showy element of these corporate entities but like on the balance sheet they're very, they're increasingly inconsequential and so that's doing a couple things. Like one thing is it's like it's forcing everyone to just play globally all the time, right? Like you have to just try to hit blockbuster after blockbuster. Um, and I think there's I think there's an another element that I think is acknowledged but underappreciated, which is how streaming, but mostly Netflix, has made Americans comfortable with foreign entertainment in a way mm. that 
real like I remember like remember like when we were growing up, like the number of like watching a movie with subtitles was like a punchline, not mm. something that you would regularly do. And and I think that has taken what what we always have kind of taken for granted about Hollywood is that that America does this better than anyone, that like we the, we produce entertainment and, and culture better than everyone. And I think there we're still I think we're still the biggest, certainly. And I think we're still probably the most we're still the most powerful for sure. But like there's been a there's kind of a uh, a comfort with uh, bringing in outsiders, out, I should say just like foreign foreign entertainers that like is a relatively new phenomenon in the like 110, 120 year history of Hollywood. I hadn't even really thought about that as part of the story. Um, it, it's been odd seeing how many actors and actresses are secretly Australian or secretly mm. British. And that became this theme in the culture. I mean, that would have been unheard of when I was a kid. Um, back when, when I was a kid, you knew who was British and you knew who was Australian. It was very important with the exception of maybe Russell Crowe is Russell Crowe. Where is he from again? I, think he's I can't Canadian. remember. I think, he, no, he's Australian. I think, I yeah, think he's Australian. Yeah. yeah. Well, it gets <laughs> weird when they do those ancient Rome movies and they affect this, uh, very patrician British accent to when they're depicting the ancient Romans. And that very much confounds your sense of who's from anywhere. Oh, it's like, yeah, everyone, everyone pre 1500 had the same accent, <laughs> like, yeah, no matter where in the world. And, and it's fancy and it's, it's fancy British. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. and we all mm -hmm. know that we all knew that. Um, so anyway, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't really thought about that as part of the story. Um, but yeah, we are in a generalized crack up where nobody is necessarily in control of where the industry seems to be headed. And I do think, I mean, I want your, I want your thought on this because you're, 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 you're maybe not one who usually gives your opinion on the quality of content and mm -hmm. you're more describing the systems. Do you think it's produced better art this particular era of the fracturing? It's a big question. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, one thing I notice, I think it depends on where you're looking, right? I certainly don't think we're, I don't think we're getting better books. Um, but I think, uh, like if we're, if we're sticking to, to movies, here's one thing I've noticed, which is, um, I think, a lot of movies that don't fall into the like the big blockbuster, big budget superhero genres, like your romantic comedies, your sort anyone of anyone but you to, to anyone, throw one out there, anyone but you or um, uh, Air, the 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 Michael Jordan uh, tennis shoe movie from from last year. These movies that like that every time they come around someone says they don't make them like that anymore. You know, like those mm. are the, those are the movies that like Hollywood used to make before they abandoned us for all these caped crusaders. Um, I do think those movies are, are getting graded on a significant curve um, because a lot of people are very nostalgic for 1994 and nostalgic for mm. uh, a time when the, the, the major motion picture was the dominant uh, form of the, the, the dominant yeah. cultural product. Um, 
And, and we all have that experience, right. Of like, of, of putting on one of those quote unquote nineties classics and realizing that it it was actually a poster. It wasn't a movie. (laughs) Um, and, and, and I think that there is, I think there is like a real grading. I, I think that, I think some of, some of the movies that are being elevated are being elevated because people are so hungry for what they thought they used to be they yes. used to be getting yeah i've seen great inflation happen over the last five years or so with that where you'll hear a lot of buzz about a movie and then you'll watch it and you'll wonder you'll just i i often you know, I think if this movie was made 10 years ago i don't think people or 15 years ago i don't think people would be acting like it's an event right right um and I, I don't know. I haven't seen anyone but you. Uh, I'm curious about anyone but you. The Sydney Swede, Sydney Sweeney, Glenn Powell vehicle. Yeah, uh, that was interesting because it was also. I mean, they are being held up as you know. The other thing that everyone's asking is like, will we have movie stars anymore? Like, who's our who's our next Julia Roberts, right? And 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 the two of them are being held up as contenders. You know, yes. like they're very they're very hot, very young. Um, they're this, they're this, they're they're these, these new talents that have emerged, and they were everywhere promoting that movie, and yet it is not performing well, and and it doesn't seem like anyone is really going to see it. Like I, I think that like the the um, the system is broken a little bit too, where yeah. that kind of like attention, notoriety, heat is not translating into ticket sales the way yeah. as as. Um, as effectively or as predictably as it once did. I mean, it's it's so hard to get that alchemy. I, I, I don't know how Barbie and Oppenheimer somehow manifested it and broke through and were signal in the culture of noise. Anyone but you, my wife suggested we see it and maybe in another era, we would have gotten together a date night and seen it, but there's just too much other stuff happening and you know there's Mm -hmm. this and there's that and it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle versus another era where a movie like that would have stood out as entertainment that was highly differentiated from channel flipping and uh these quiet moments in life so uh maybe i'm making excuses for it maybe it's just no you're not no 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 no. stupid movie uh no and and i actually would totally read your review of it um but i I think like, I think what, um, you're also, but I don't think you're giving enough, uh, credit to, it's just sort of like the, the, the power of habit and, and and falling out of habit and, and movie theater operators talk about this all the time, um, about when, if you can get someone just to come see one movie, the chances that they come back because you just sort of cross that barrier to entry that exists either like psychically or, or just out of some kind of pattern recognition. Like it just is, is so much easier to turn it into a more regular habit. Such a good point. Like people used to just see movies because they were at the movie theater. That does not exist anymore. Right. You do not have young Quentin Tarantino's just checking out the movies and taking a little flyer on a movie that they know very little about. That's not, so much a thing uh people people seek out exactly what they want to consume um and it is barrier of entry is just a tricky it's just a tricky thing right now 
out there in the culture. Uh, Eric, what, what have you got coming down the pike? What are you working on? What are you taking an interest in right now? Uh, right now, um, I'm, I'm mostly immersed in uh, my second book, which is about Star Wars and uh, how Star Wars became what it is today. Um, not just this economic juggernaut, but this, I mean, I mean, talk about uh, bowling alone. I mean, the, uh, and the communal bonds that you can find in that world and the fracturing you can find in that world, too. Um, but it's, it's taking a look at, at Star Wars and, uh, and Lucasfilm over the last 50 years or so. Are you a Star Wars guy? No, I'm a, I'm a, I would say I was like a, a very casual fan, but yeah. I was um, just really fascinated in trying to answer the question yeah. as to, I, because, I, cause when you talk to, when you talk to Star Wars fans, they talk about it a way that no one talks about any cultural yeah. product. No, I'm not either. Um, I, I kind of casually liked it, uh, I, but I didn't. I I wasn't aware. I mean, this other thing is happening right now where I wasn't aware there were adult Star Wars fans when I was a kid. I, maybe mm. they existed, but I, I I was not aware of that being a thing. And then you grow up, and certain friends of yours are just these huge Star Wars fans, and. That kind of connection is not something I understand, and that's why I want to read that by you. I, I need it explained to me. I yeah, need to know yeah, why my friend yeah. Amin El Hassan is this huge Star yep. Wars fan. I, I don't hate it. I just don't. I just don't get it. It's like, okay, there's a Wookiee. You know, that's cool. I mean, I, I don't. It's uh, kind of a very broad epic. Uh, I don't know what trick was performed there to make it something that connects with people on that kind of level. You just, you just encapsulated, uh, cause I think it's, it's a mix of two things. Like I think there is, there is an inherent, uh, attraction in the product itself and in the original story, the original myth, but there were also very savvy business decisions made to, to make that happen and make that stick. And, and I mean, imagine then running this franchise at this point, it's now almost going to be 50 years old in a couple of years and trying to manage a fandom that includes everyone from the Amines of the world to the 65 year old who saw it when he was in middle school and still has all his original toys and the 12 year old who thinks that Luke Skywalker is a boring old white guy and she wants to see much different kinds of many more different kinds of heroes. Like it's become such a massive entity that managing that creatively and economically has been, I think really difficult, especially since the, the Disney acquisition. God, it's, and, and it almost requires more explanation than the endurance of the Bond franchise. That's just kind of intuitive to me. Like, oh, yeah, that's a, a, a type of male fantasy. You know, I, I get it. I understand it. It's a little weird how they're, they, they rotate out old ones for the new ones to replenish it and, and everything else. But I don't need it explained. I need Star Wars explained. And I'm, I'm happy that you're going to explain it for us. Well, Eric, this has been completely fascinating yeah uh, for me too i don't i i you know i look at it kind of like the end of burn after reading where the hmm. jk simmons character is going what did we learn i don't know what we learned i don't know what we learned necessarily from the fall of dave hollis uh how to apply it to our own lives eric as influencers we are influencers in a way 
Um, hopefully the listeners, the subscribers will tell us what the great moral of that fascinating and morbid story, uh, <laughs> fascinating and morbid story is. I'm not laughing at how morbid it is. It's just that producer made said I'm stealing Pablo's bit, uh, you know, at the end of each episode. Hey, it's accidental. What can you do? Uh, great minds and voices since he has my exact voice cadence, uh, to think alike. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. I'll be looking forward to reading your work in the Wall Street Journal and of course this up coming Star Wars book. This hey, has been thank fascinating. You. Oh, I, I could talk to you all day, Ethan. Really, it's a pleasure.